This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. So as we approach this Veterans Day, I want to share with you that Starbucks is going to be giving a free hot or cold coffee to active duty service members, veterans, and military spouses at any of their U.S. stores on November 11th. In addition to that, they're going to be donating $100,000 apiece to the Travis Manion Foundation and Team Red, White, and Blue to continue our work within the military community and veteran community. I want to thank Starbucks for their continued commitment to honoring and supporting our veterans and to giving back to the Travis Manion Foundation. Well, I want to welcome back uh, to The Resilient Life Brian Shantosh, more affectionately known as Tosh. And Tosh, you were episode number two of the Resilient Life podcast. Did you know that? I knew I was early on and yeah. I knew it was a it was a tremendous privilege to be so. So uh, I'm glad to be back. Yeah. So we just looked it up. I said, when was Tosh on? And it was episode two. And, you know, my first episode was... Alex Gorski, former CEO and chairman of Johnson and Johnson. And then it was you, it was, it was Alex and Tosh and, um, it's not a bad second. It's not a bad second to be part of, uh, well, you know, for myself, like that's pretty good company right there. And, you know, I'm really glad you're back on because I have to be honest. I do not, when people are like, oh, you have a podcast, you know, I'm going to listen to it. But I'm like, yeah, start around like episode 20. You know, it took me, it took me a minute to kind of get my feet wet and, know what I was doing. And I remember like when you came on the show, that was August, the episode released August 11th of 2020. And I had printed out questions and I did not deviate from those questions. It was like, this is my list of what I'm going to talk to Tosh about. And, you know, it takes, it takes a minute to get comfortable being on that side and creating conversation. Um, and, I've ne I was never on the side of interviewing. So um, I'm glad to have you back on and I can now recommend this episode, hopefully to people. Oh, go listen to Tosh, episode number 73, you know? Perfect. Um, yeah, so I wanted to bring you back for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is, you know, our relationship and, and more importantly, the relationship with the Travis Manning Foundation and the work that you do has evolved in a huge way since August of 2020. And, um, you know, I think about when I interviewed you, I had met you a couple times. I, you know, knew your story. I knew so many people that served with you, but I really didn't get to know you until that January. So a few months later, I got to know you in a very different way. And we'll talk about that, but, um, you know, we now are in a place where we have a really deep partnership with Big Fish Foundation, which is your foundation, and the Travis Manning Foundation. And you have become an integral part of the work that we do 
with our Spartan Leadership Program, which for those that don't know is our, um, you know, seven month experiential professional and personal development program for veterans. And we bring cohorts of veterans for, you know, to dive into anything and everything about their personal leadership development. And, and it kind of culminates with Tosh in, you know, at his home in Colorado for a week. And, um, we just were in cohort number, I think five now it's five or five or six. And seven, seven years we've been doing it, but uh, the official Spartan leadership program now for uh, five cohorts, four years. Yeah. And, you know, I remember when we like originally talked about this and said, you know, how do we bring these veterans together um, and do something in person? Right. And your name came up as someone who could help facilitate that. And I don't think any of us could have imagined how life-changing it would be for the veterans that get to be immersed with you and your philosophy for a week. And, you know, I, I went on, I went on that first expedition in Colorado. And I mean, I guess let's, let's talk about that a little bit because that was the first in-person and it was, we were kind of in still in the midst of COVID. We didn't know if we were going to do it, you know, and, um, and we did, we were like, yeah, we're doing this. We're all coming out. And I think we had about 20 veterans that came out. Um, and I showed up at your place and you had tents outside and it was, you know, throw your sleeping bag in there. And I didn't really fully know what I was getting into, but I went because I wanted to really see what I wanted to put value in the program, right? And be able to go out and talk about it from a first person as as opposed to just saying, this is what we do. Um, But I didn't expect to be a participant in the way that I was. And you made me a participant. You didn't allow me to be like, oh, I'm going to observe. You actually made me be a part of the experience. And I thank you for that. Um, But let's start with what you are trying to accomplish when you bring veterans to your place for the week. Yeah. I, um, uh, you know, it's funny because I, I challenge all the veterans uh, through the zoom calls prior to leading up. It's like, what's your definition of leadership? Don't arrive without a definition. And I beat them up and, and largely they regurgitate something that they were given some cute thing from their branch of service or, you know, some quote from somewhere and it's like, yeah, that's, that's great. But what does it really mean? Have you ever really dissected it and pulled it apart? And um, usually at the end of the week, they're like, well, well, Tosh, what's your definition of leadership? And I was like, I don't have to give you one because you lived it. And it's, it's ever present, right? My definition of leadership is ever present in how I conduct myself when nobody's watching, when I'm interacting with others, strangers, family, loved ones, and um, by bringing by bringing veterans in, I'm allowing them an opportunity to to experience my definition of leadership through my actions, and um, it's also giving me an opportunity to be able to express my my care, my compassion, my love, my consideration for a, for a community of people that are near and dear to my heart. Um, and then, and then just to, um, just to pause, it's not always just veterans that come up, right. The Spartan leadership program has, um, uh, gold star family members as well, um, that have never served, but they have a connection to the veteran community to, to, um, and I always reframe it too, right. Like the veteran community, but like to service, 
Right. Um, and I think that's what's special, whether it's a veteran community, whether it's first responder, whether it's whatever, 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 the the common theme is is something bigger than ourselves, right? In the in the spirit of of growth and optimism and ideal and virtue. And that's really what service is, right? Uh something there we just happen to or I just happen to affiliate with it through the veteran um status, right? So my goal is just to bring people to the house and shower them with love and care and compassion um, because that's the hallmark of my leadership sort of vein and uh, I challenge them I like to challenge their their belief sets um, sometimes I agree with them or disagree with them it doesn't matter but I want them to understand why and how they've arrived at believing what they believe and then start to go through the checklist with are your beliefs serving you and your community and your purposes well or not? And if the answer is no, then why are we continuing to hold on to these, these paradigms? And so this, this whole week up here is just challenging what we know. I like to say what we know is exactly in the way of us knowing and um, create connections and bonds with each other. Um, then we can find strength and it's it's a very intrapersonal experience for for individuals as they they leave here like really full in the heart but heavy and like wow what was that and so I don't know if I answered the question I'm just kind of no I, I I'm I'm trying to like I I think I feel like that's how I left and you know I just I just spoke a few weeks ago at um, Echelon Front um, I saw that. Yeah. And so they did their first women's thing. And um, I was trying to think of some of the values that are really important to me and what I wanted to talk about. And, and I wanted it. And I, I, you know, I always talk about failure as a bruise, not a tattoo. And, and I wanted to talk about some times that I had failed and I was searching for, okay, what's a really great example, not of a time I had failed a while ago, right? But a time recently where I felt I had failed. And one of the times I really felt like I had failed was when I was in Colorado. And it was, you know, our, our second day we get there. And, um, and I'm, I'm going to tell the story. And then I'm curious to know if, you felt the same way coming out of this experience that I did, that I thought you felt, but we go and do a quick climb. Okay. And we, we do a quick hike, but it's, I guess it was a thousand foot, but it was real. It was steep. Right. So, um, and we come down and we're riding the vans back and I feel like absolute dog shit. Like the, my head is spinning in the van on the way back. We get into the tent and I immediately, I, I'm lying down in the tent. We had brought out pizzas for everyone. We were doing a pizza dinner. Lindsay, one of the the women I work with comes in and I'm like, I'm sick. Something's wrong. I end up getting on the phone with a friend of mine, Carlo, um, uh, who served in the Marine Corps and is, you know, he knows who you are. And, and I'm just like, listen, I'm out here with Tosh. I'm like sick. I've got all these veterans and Gold Star family members here and He's like, yeah, you definitely have altitude sickness. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, you got to get these pills. You got to get this, uh, you know, the oxygen spray. And he's telling, and then he starts freaking me out even more, you know, because I'm like, oh my God, I'm I'm like ill. And we had just come from a hotel where he'd spent two nights at the hotel. And he's like, you probably should go back down to the hotel maybe and like get reacclimated to the altitude. 
and I come out of the tent and, I, and in my head, I'm like, I'm going to go back down to the hotel for the night. Like I'm, I feel like crap. I can't sleep in this tent. It's cold as shit. I'm going to throw up. And I walk in and you're standing there and you're making burgers in your kitchen and it's you and, and, uh, Jojo and Preston, our camera guys, and you guys are all drinking beers and, and, and I walk in and I'm, I'm about to lose it. And I'm like, Hey, I'm not feeling good. You know, I've got altitude sickness. And you looked right at me and you're like, altitude sickness doesn't exist. And I just started crying and I was crying in front of all these people. And I turned around and I walked out and you followed me out and you sat down next to me and, and you're like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, maybe I should go back to the hotel. And you're like, is that what you want to do? You want to go back to the hotel? And I knew when you were saying that to me that you weren't actually asking me if I wanted to go back to the hotel or I, at least that's what I thought. And I went back and I went to, went back into our tent and um, I had the worst night of my life. I threw up all night. I was out at the porta potty, what we had, which we had. And I was cursing you for probably seven hours out at that porta potty as I was like throwing up, like, you know, and all I could hear in my head was altitude sickness doesn't exist. And the next day I was wrecked. And I realized when I look back on that experience, you know, in my head and the way I explained it when I shared it with the audience was that you actually were not going to allow me to fail. And I didn't understand why. And, and I may be off on this, but when I look back on that, I don't think you were going to let me fail in front of all those people that were there. And you weren't going to let me go back to that hotel and curl under the covers with the TV. And, and so I was actually saying, you know, sometimes it takes others to, to help you with, you know, overcome failure. And for me, I would have failed if it had not been for you. I would have failed in that moment. I would have gotten in a car and drove back down, you know, to take care of myself. Um, but you didn't allow me to fail. So that may not be what it was like for you on your end, but that's kind of how I took it. And it was a really pivotal moment for me uh, an experience for me. Yeah. Uh, my, my observation, a little different. We're both standing on different hilltops looking down yeah. in the Valley. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I would, first off, this sounds like a great advertisement promotion for, Hey, come up to the SLP program. You're going <laughs> to, you're going to have the worst night of your life and freezing. Well, you were saying, <laughs> and, and I was laughing because you said I lead with compassion and uh, love. And I was like, I wasn't yeah. feeling it in that moment, you know? So. Uh, it doesn't, it, yeah, that's the thing, right? what is compassion and love? It, it doesn't, uh, sometimes it's misguided. It's looked through the wrong filter. And, um, as I remember it, yeah, we went on an acclimatization hike, right? Um, the very first hike, it's very deliberate. We, we, you know, boulders at 5,000 feet. So everybody comes in staff, um, a day or two early and they do some work and everything. And it's part of making sure the staff is set up for success, um, ahead of time. Um, part of that process is acclimatization because you don't need to have a staff and an audience of participants, both, right? Um, our house is at 7,000 feet. We go up to about 8,500 for our first like little walk. Then we come back down to 7,000 feet, but, um, and then we give a lot of food and hydration and everything like that. So thinking of the, the physical sense, um, but yeah, uh, you had a predisposed, um, not condition. You you had a previous experience when you were in Vale Beaver Creek skiing one year, yeah, they, where you had altitude sickness. 
like the year before I got. Yeah. yeah. At 10,000, 10,000 feet and whatnot. And I think, um, so that was data that I was collecting in from you through conversation. Right. Um, I find that a lot of people are in a rush to solve, rush to solve, rush to solve. And a lot of times they'll get one piece of information. They want to solve things given that one piece of information instead of saying, Hey, we're not in a life-threatening situation right now. Let's trade some time and some space for more information. And I remember when you walked into the kitchen and Puddin, I call him Puddin, you call him Preston. Um, he's in a rush to solve everything. He's got all these fixes and all these things. Oh, you got to do this, you got to do this. And I'm just like, hey, I'll take care of it. And what what Ryan needed was just a little bit more time. Tosh needed a little time to gather some information and to just – and so my response to you, I thought it was a lot softer than that. Like altitude sickness doesn't it exist. It probably uh, was, but in my head, that's, that's how I remember it. It probably was yeah. But, you know, I just, hey, boom, here's your response real quick. Um, and then, of course, yeah, absolutely followed you out the door and sat down and we talked. We had a good conversation and just I felt a little bit of anxiety and tension. And that's not going to help symptoms you know, go away or, or faux symptoms, right. To clear so that we can identify the real symptoms. And, um, you know, just a lot of things swirling through my head, just like instantaneously, right. Like there's so many different facets of what you need to do here. We have Ryan up here. We need to have a successful event. Um, she's a figurehead, um, for, for the audience. Like there's, there's so many things. I don't want to set Ryan up for failure for the rest of her, her life or relationship with these people and the program. Like there's just so many things that are just coming into place. And sometimes you just need to slow down and just let those things have an opportunity to be discussed internally and externally. And I think we did that. Yeah. Um, you spent the night and I knew it was a miserable night for you because you didn't look, um, you didn't have the gorgeous filter on that you have right now uh, <laughs> the next morning, but we talked and we strategized and, um, we went on another hike that next day, but you stayed here at the house. We didn't yeah. go back down to Boulder and, and we allowed this, allowed the things to subside and, and build some confidence. But, um, you know, I appreciate you and, you know, Camille and, you know, um, uh, not Lindsay, man, I love Lindsay. She's back in the States now too. Um, your trust in, in me and in my professional abilities and in the areas of my expertise that I have. And, and we worked through it and there was nothing lost. And and I remember the one thing that two things that we talked about when we were sitting in those, um, those plastic chairs right outside the garage. And uh, you were, you were having an emotional moment because you were struggling with, Hey, I'm, I'm the leader. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do that. I need to be there. I need to be there. What are they going to think of me? And it's like, Hey, I get it. Um, and we had the conversation, well, what are they going to think of you if you go on the hike and then you do fail to the degree that it's like, hey, compromises the mission, right? Like good, strong leaders, they have to recognize where they're at and they hey, the mission can still go on. It might look a little different than we envisioned, but we're going to achieve the outcomes that we're going to achieve. I'm not like the, the single point of success for anything. And um, we talked through that a little bit. And then I actually gave you the advice, like, why don't we just, why don't we go down to Boulder, get a cup of coffee, and then we'll come back up in the afternoon. Nobody's, everybody's going to be dealing with their own shit. They're not even going to know you're missing. It's going to be okay. And you actually made the choice, made the decision not to go back down. It wasn't Tosh not letting you down, which is, which is exciting for me, right? Like, I don't like to make decisions for people. I like to get them in a, in a cognitive space to be rational, to think through some things and then make the decisions for themselves. One that denies them a, an out 
right? Because then I can be the scapegoat for for their personal growth or reflection, you know. And then, but two, it's it's, it's empowering, right? And then the decisions that are made by an individual, not somebody else, are the most relevant and rewarding, right, for that individual when when it's done that way. And uh, you were you were perfect. It just needed a little bit more time. You just needed a little bit more time than other people to adjust to the elevation that we're sitting at. And um, your body's different. And we didn't do any hocus pocus. And I don't think you were experiencing altitude sickness by the definition, but it was the early stages of altitude sickness um, on setting. I would, my professional, unprofessional opinion, um, just based off of the elevation we were at. But um, you were definitely experiencing something due to the environment and we just need a little bit of time to let that pass through. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I look at that, that experience, I watched things like that, not, not that specific thing, but little things and moments like that with each of the participants that happened throughout the week. And I think that is a little bit part of the magic that's created up there, right? Where you're saying you actually made the decision in my head. Like I, I, I didn't think I was given a decision, but I guess I actually did, you know? Um, but that's what people walk away from that week with. And, you know, I was talking to, I was talking to someone this morning that you served with in the Marine Corps. And he said to me that Tosh is the most, self-aware person that I've ever met. Like, and I don't know if you feel that way about yourself, but he said he is the most self-aware person that I, that I've ever known. Like, you know, back when he, and, but he also talked about the, the difference. Like you say, you lead with compassion and love. When you were in uniform, would you have said that you led with compassion and love? 100%. Yeah when I look back and I, and I see what it really was and I've had, well, sir, you, you NJP'd me, you know, you reduced me in rank and took half my salary for six months. Like that's not compassionate love. I, you know, I have two kids and this and that, this and that. And I was like, yeah, I was thinking a little longer term and compassion and love sometimes looks like a spanking. And sometimes it looks like a hug. And sometimes it looks like a, you need a moment alone. Sometimes it looks like holding hands. I, it, it's just different for everybody based on yeah. the different situations. But we have this vision in our head when we say compassion and love, it's hugs and smiles and kisses and hand-holding, and it's nice, nice. And sometimes the most loving thing you can say to somebody is, F you, right? Um, because that's what they need to hear to, to like, oh, I'm stuck in my own echo chamber, or like, I'm full of my own right now that I can't see out of it. And I, I think of the people that love me the most in my life have loved me the most in my military career as I've received it. It came with a lot of lickings, you know, a lot of spankings, but it was always from a really good, well-intended place because they could see a little further down the road than what I was looking at. And, um, yeah, I'm not saying that, you know, every moment was compassion and love, uh, when, when I was a commander, but, um, that was a driving force. And I, I think that's a lot of what didn't led me to be say that I was terminal in my active duty career. Right. Like it just, it, 
you don't they don't talk about this in leadership schools right it in the at least in the marine corps i don't i don't know about the other services but we didn't go to boot camp and say hey like you have authoritarian style leadership and you have persuasive and there's consensus and there's they, they didn't talk about relationships and love and um i think i'm just wired that way there's it's not better or worse than anybody else and that's where sort of some of this um discordance inside started to reveal later in my career um and it's like, hey, I, I think I'm promoted beyond my capacity to serve right now. And it's time for me to to exit. Do you think that that it's a fair assessment to for someone to say that you're you're very self-aware? Yeah, to a fault, I think, because it drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when I was thinking about in our in our first the first time that you were on the show we talked a lot about about your background right so you are um a navy cross recipient you have two bronze stars with valor um you you did a lot in the marine corps and um if you talk about if you talk to people who served with you during that time and there's a few that that knew you during that time and and know you now. Um, and it was actually Josh Jabin who, you know, he said at some point Tosh took the gloves off and he was actually telling me a story that you used to put boxing gloves on and like people would, and you would want to box everybody and, and people would get in line to fight you. Like, and, and, and I don't know what the exercise was or why you were doing that, but he said, literally people would line up to fight Tosh. Like that was a thing. And he said, at some point Tosh took his boxing gloves off and, and we were talking about it because he said last week, one of our, our special events, uh, director was talking to, to Josh. And so Josh Jabin is our COO uh, 20 year Marine, um, and wrestled at the Naval Academy. And last week, our special events director said to him, said something to him and he goes, well, you know, because I'm an athlete and, and he, she goes, you're not an athlete. And he said, and she said it to me so quickly, like, well, you're not an athlete. And he said, and I almost like stopped. And I was like, holy shit, I'm not an athlete. And he said like that identity of who I was like, all of a sudden he said it was like a light bulb went off and I'm like, yeah, I'm not an athlete. I run like twice a month. I've got a bad back and you know, I'm, I'm not an, the athlete that I was. And so he said it was just this like really quick moment for him where who he was all of a sudden he was like, that's not who I am anymore. And he, and he said, I, I battle with like, do I want to get back there? Like, do I want to be that person again? He said, you know, one of my roommates in Okinawa, he's a jiu-jitsu trainer. And he was telling me, you got to get into jiu-jitsu. And, and he was saying, well, I don't like, I don't even know if I could get back into that place. But he said, what happened was one person just said to him, you're not an athlete. And all of a sudden his identity that he, that he had carried with him for a long time. He was like, wait, yeah. And how, and it's been a while since I haven't been an athlete. And so, you know, I wonder for you, like, was there a moment where you realized you weren't the person that you were in uniform, or maybe you believe you still are that person? And if you don't believe you still are that person, did it, was it something that was like with Josh, where somebody kind of told you, Hey, you're not that guy anymore. 
or was it a gradual process for you? Does that make sense? hundred percent. It's yeah. actually in the moment. It even is, uh, we talked before we, we started rolling about the event we did up in uh, Montana and, um, it's a large portion of what I do with, with those events is challenge people's narratives because there's so much more than what they just want to latch onto as the labels that are convenient. And sometimes our labels are what's holding us back. You know, I remember there was a TMF event here. It was three cohorts ago. And then we had a lady that all she wanted to say as a, as a female veteran, as a female in the military, as a female, as a female, as a female. And there was another gentleman then, and she was queuing this other guy up. Well, as a black man in the military, as a black man in the army, as a black man, this is, and it's just like, hey, and it was, it was a very risky role. And I had established a little bit of a rapport for two or three days, but that was just like, hey, you know what? I'm tired of this. Like, I know you're a female and I know you're in the military and I know you're black. Like, I can see it, right? Like, can we stop over-identifying with that? Because that's what's limiting you, right? What else are you, Yeah. right? Well, you, you know, and, and, and we hear it all the time too. Like, oh, I'm a combat veteran. I'm a combat veteran. It's like, why do you feel like you have to put that adjective on? Like, hey, you're a veteran. Hey, you're a father. You're a husband. You're a wife. You're a daughter. Like, we're so many more things. You, you, you are an athlete. You're a mathematician. You love art. Like, it's so many more things. But we just try to latch on to one thing that gives us, and that's getting us the feedback for the identification to be different. And it's holding us back. And <clears throat> I had... It was very, it was at the beginning of the SLP program. We had done two veteran events here in Colorado first, um, leadership expeditions, and it was transitioning. It was probably five years ago now. And I was, I didn't realize I was going through, uh, uh, I don't want to call it a crisis, right? Because I think that word is too strong, um, but, but, a, but a midlife defining event, right? Um, and I was struggling really, really bad and I didn't realize it. And then I, I, went to the VA for some help, um, for some physical, some skin cancer stuff, because I was worried about money and finances. And I was just going there for that. But in order to get in, I had to register with the VA, which I'd never done. I just literally told Dan Healy, I wasn't coming to work Monday morning when I retired. Um, so I didn't do any of that work. So I find myself six years, seven years post military service, going to check in with the VA for the first time. And then it's like, it's very confusing, especially when you're not working well up here. Yeah. And, um, I just wanted to get an appointment with a skin, skincare doctor. And, uh, I was like, Oh no. And it triggered this and triggered this and triggered this. And next thing you know, I'm going through the medical side and I'm going through the claim side. And, and then my whole world just, I was struggling and I didn't even realize how I was struggling. And, uh, I sat down with this army sergeant major in his office and I just broke down. I remember bawling in this army sergeant major. I mean, he's got a salad bowl like this. He's been there, done that. And I uh, just break down in front of him and he, the words he shared with me and like you, to the extent that you need to evolve, you need to become more, you need to, you know, not let go, but you need to release a little bit of that stuff. And, you know, during your time, as a, as a specifically as a commander in the infantry community in combat, right? Like you, you have to be the biggest, the fastest, the strongest, the smartest, the most resilient. You don't feel fear. Like you, you have, you don't want to be anything less than the, the most and the best of anything, because that's what the men deserve when we're facing the most horrific times of our lives. And I never let that go. And for years and years, I keep getting these phone calls 
like so-and-so just committed suicide so-and-so just took their life and so-and-so did this and 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 say like, why does this keep happening why does this keep happening and i didn't put two and two together until i have this event at the va and i say hey i need to i need to accept that i need to evolve i need to grow beyond what i was i need to let that live in time and space where it was appropriate but it's not appropriate anymore you know, in the Marine Corps, we say uh, we're so adaptable, any climate place, right? And yet here I am using old tactics and strategies, and I'm in a whole different environment. I'm in, I'm post-military life, trying to do other things, yet I'm using the tactics and strategies that allowed me to find some success on the battlefield. And I had to do some soul searching. Um, I had to, to start questioning, who am I? Who do I want to be? How do I show up for others? And, uh, I just started sharing. I started sharing through my podcast. Um, I started, uh, finding strength through being vulnerable and being okay with that. And next thing you know, the phone started flooding the text messages, the emails like, sir, oh my God, like, I didn't want to share this with you, but I feel this and I feel this. And I didn't want to disappoint you. And I didn't want to let you down. I didn't want you to think that I was a giant sissy. I didn't want to. And I'm like, exactly the opposite brother. We're all experiencing these things. And it's like, yeah, but sir, like you were always this. And, and you, if, if I was doing that, I was like, man, I'm, I'm screwing it all up. You know, I, I, you know, take another Marine Corps leadership um, principle. It's like lead by example. And here I am leading this example. That's causing more harm for veterans when they should be in the safest place that they've ever been right. Post-military service back in the home front, enjoying the liberties and the freedoms that they've, they've chosen to defend and, we're doing more harm to ourselves now than we were when we were serving in the most horrible places. And it was a, it was an epiphany for me. And I decided to learn how to ask for help, learn how to show weakness in inappropriate ways and, but still not be weak, but be able to express and share. And um, through that process, I've really been on a quest for the last five, six years and, and that's largely the work I do with the Big Fish Foundation is to to show men and women that this is the path forward or a path forward. And this is the re these are the resources and these are the things that I use to do um, to get through it. But, yeah, it was a, a significant um, live event for me five, six years ago when I went to seek some help. And it's been hard, but it's been very rewarding. Um, and I, I feel, I, I said this to a group that was here for an event a couple months ago, I'm a better Marine Corps officer today than I ever was because I'm realizing that, um, my season of strength as we know it back then has passed and I've been trying to hold on to it. That was the summer and I've been trying to hold on to summer for so long. And it's like, Hey, now I'm experiencing Indian summer, but we know it's a false summer. It's just a you know, these little blips of a yeah. couple of days, it's like, I need to embrace the fall and know that winter's coming and, and spring and summer will come back around and that's okay, but it'll look different as I move forward and I grow. And so trading strength for wisdom, you know, trading aggressiveness for patience and, and leveraging my experiences in this new capacity that somebody that's half my years younger wouldn't have the experiences to be able to accumulate to arrive at i'm doing a greater service to my experiences by being a product of them instead of trying to hold on to you know 2003 will you talk about 
you, you use the word vulnerable, right? You had to be vulnerable. And like, that's a big word for me because I, I can talk about stuff that I've been through. I can talk about, you know, how I've overcome things in my life. I can, I can talk very easily and very openly. I can sit here and tell you when I was, you know, diagnosed with PTSD, I, I can share all of that, but that's not being vulnerable, right? Like for me, that's not being vulnerable. Like being vulnerable was walking into your kitchen and crying. Like that was total vulnerability from someone who goes around saying like, I've cried five times in the last 10 years. You know, one of them happened to be in your kitchen. Like that was the most extreme vulnerability that I've experienced in a long time. And so when you talk about, you know, you have to be vulnerable, like, and you say, I have this life experience and um, I'm, I, I break down, I'm vulnerable to the Sergeant Major. How would you have reacted when you were in uniform, if someone had come in, right? Would you have been accepting of that where they said, I didn't want to talk, you know, you say, then, then everything started blowing up right? Then my phone, the text, the this, the that. Well, had you been in uniform and someone came in and shared with you what they shared with you after that life moment, would you have, would you have responded in the same way? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I don't think I had an emotional capacity, right? I would love to want to have been that way. Um, I would have, I would have shown compassion. It would not have been to the degree that I would now um, I was always firm and fair at the same time. Right. Like, um, I would love to say that I would have been just like that Sergeant major. I don't think I would have been. Um, and then I start to wonder, right. Like, so what were other things, because I would never have a man come into my office and, and do that. And so then I think of what else was I putting up as a facade that prevented people from actually doing that while we were serving right because there must have been something there that was like hey we're not going to go into the skipper's office we're going to go talk to this person like and i'm not going to go i'm not going to say i'm ashamed or embarrassed like if i could go back not that i would and try to use this reflection as an opportunity for growth back then in the moment that's an area that i probably would have put more attention on to be more welcoming of individuals that were going through those, those crisis type moments. Right. Yeah. Um, what you did for me by coming into the kitchen, um, for you, it was a moment of vulnerability. You were, you know, and all the things associated with that, you gave me a tremendous gift, right? This is how I look at it is you walking into the kitchen gave me a tremendous gift. Um, you showed me without knowing it, that you trusted me, you believed in me. Um, you, gave me a window and an opportunity to be able to help, right? Um, to be able to show and demonstrate to another degree how much I actually believe what I say I believe through my actions. Um, and that's how I look at being vulnerable, right? It's not a it's not a kitschy thing to do in stage, oh, I'm gonna show vulnerability here. Like that's not what it is. Um, when you express vulnerability, anybody, right? You're giving others the opportunity who do care and love you to be able to help yeah 
because that's how I'm wired, right? I just want to help. I want to help. I want to help. And it's like, hey, come ask me for help. I'm more than happy to. I'm more than happy to. As long as I can say no, if I don't have the time and put you with somebody else, like I want to help as many people as possible and is genuine. But I can't deliver on that sense of purpose if people aren't asking for the help, right? And there are other people that are like that. So if you flip the coin over and look at it from the from the other side, I too then should be doing those things for others, right? So that they can have that reward as well. So, so you gave me a tremendous gift. Um, and then I gave you a gift and that's, it's beautiful, right? It's the way I think that it's supposed to be. Um, and, and we're in, we're in a, we're in an environment now where we can do that. Maybe, maybe not that environment back in Fallujah or, or whatever. That's fine. Um, and I still kind of negotiate back and forth between the then and the now, but the then was, is then, and all I have control over is now and I can influence the future. So that's where I'm focused on is trying to get people to understand. So like the gloves, the gloves come off. Like I still do. I still put gloves on. We were up in Montana and we put the gloves on and it's not, I, it's funny that you're talking about this because I did my Instagram post last night at two in the morning about oh, the gloves on with the room of pain. And it used to be something much different. And I've felt so strongly how valuable that exercise was that I do rooms of pain during our foundation events. And, but they're not rooms of pain. They're like circles of communication and trust where we're going to put our gloves on. If you come to a Big Fish Foundation event, it's more likely than not that one of our daily activities is going to put the boxing gloves on and we're going to meet in the ring. And it's not about trying to be a better boxer or punch or hurt anybody. It's about being able to trust somebody to be able to communicate to them. And our lips, our mouth is are doing disservice to our hearts and our souls more often than we're aware of. And we don't, we won't, we don't even need to talk. We just let our gloves talk to each other and you express the things that are going on for you through just some engagement. And there's tremendous amount of trust and release in, in doing that. And, um, it's, it's a pretty powerful little, uh, exercise, but, um, that's what the gloves are for me now. They're not about asserting dominance or anything else, right? It's, it's about saying, Hey, let's have a conversation that, um, we normally wouldn't otherwise have because of some fear or some aversion or some distortion and um it's just honest and intimate and really really powerful well i think you know when i kind of when i look at the this space right i look at the the community of veterans um that exists right now and some of the more high profile veterans um you most of them don't talk about words like vulnerability and compassion and leading with love right there's a little bit of a i don't know if they feel an obligation to continue the kind of moto you know image that they had when they were in the military and and in fact I think that is what's so intriguing about you because you quite possibly like you were legendary in the Marine Corps for all of that. 
And then you come out and you're talking about things like we're going to meet with our boxing gloves, you know, and have a conversation. And, and I think it's, it's beautiful to see because when you look at where we are today and the number of veterans that are killing themselves, um, it is an epidemic and we all talk about it, but there aren't real solutions that are happening outside of honestly, like outside of clinical care, which is sometimes very necessary and where you need to go. Like we talk about community, right? And we talk about this idea of community and being able to come together. And that's a lot of what I see happen, you know, out at your place. It's, it's, you're creating that space for these conversations to happen, that community for these conversations to take place. And you're playing the role of helping to facilitate that in a really meaningful way. Well, you're not showing up talking about, I'm a combat veteran. And um, that's not what you're leading with. And in fact, I don't even think when I was there that week, I think if people had not read the bio that we provided them about you, you were just Tosh living up at a house in Colorado and you were going to take us hiking and doing some fun shit for the week. Like they didn't, you, that, that wasn't anything that you used in your arsenal to kind of work through what they had to work through. And so, you know, how do we pull more out of that, more out of our veteran community to, to lead in the way that you do? Yeah, it's interesting that you 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 recognize that. It's something that um some of the biggest compliments I've had, you know, are, are around that because that that's meaningful, right? Like that is who I am. I'm just Tosh living in the mountains. That that's who I am. Yeah, I was that, but that was a go. Not that it's not relevant or valuable in certain times or places, but those certain times or places are few and far between. And if I can always go back to my resume. Um, I would put my resume up against anybody, any of these high profile, I would put my resume against them in a heartbeat. Um, but I don't need to lead with my resume. Um, because I can always go back to that if, if what I'm leading with doesn't work and I haven't had to, because what I'm doing is working and then therein lies the, the, the positive feedback mechanism. Right. Um, and, and not disparaging these high profile individuals that are out there. They're serving an audience that are seeking what they're offering and it's and it, we're all part of the same puzzle, right? We're all different pieces. <clears throat> um, I'm I'm just blessed, fortunate that I have the experiences that I have, and I have my mindset that I have, and the combination of those two. They're not necessarily unique, but they're it's powerful, and I can do it the way I do it. Um, I think it connects with people on a more real, like it's 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 definitely more relatable, right? How many how many individuals if if of all of the TMF groups that came up here, there might be two or three individuals, right? So how many, 20, 100, about 150 over the last um, five SLP programs have been to the house, maybe three or four would be able to, if I used a Fallujah story, it would resonate and they'd be able to, right? If if I'm, if, what what's that rate of return? Four out of 150? Like I'm not, I'm not in the business of trying to positively impact four out of 150 people. I'm trying to positively impact 150 out of 150 people in a way that extends beyond just our 
interaction. It, it extends into their lives back at home with their families, with their work in their workplace and, and within themselves for months and years and years, right? It's I'm, people aren't coming up here for me to deliver me so that I can benefit. It's not how I'm wired. And well, I no. feel. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I think because of the way you approach because of the way you approach things, you are, you are positively affecting more people, right? You are having greater influence over people feeling comfortable with being vulnerable, with opening up, you know, have you ever thought you say, you know, that's your resume, that, that was your summer season. You're in the fall now. Like, have you ever thought of going back and having conversations with the Marine Corps about, hey, like these are some like l- lessons I've learned as I've taken off the uniform as a combat veteran, right? Um, that we should potentially be putting into practice before that uniform comes off. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. Um, I don't, I think, the, I think the Marine Corps. They don't need Tosh back. Um, well, no, I'm not saying go back into to, the Marine happy Corps. To get rid of me, right? I mean, um, <laughs> but I'm saying, you know, you think about like we are constantly talking about how how we work with our veteran community with the mental health crisis that's taking place. Well, I mean, I think a big part of that is because we're not preparing them when they're still wearing that uniform. Right? Are they fully prepared for what that looks like? And I can't tell you how many veterans I've talked to that says, you know, hey, listen, the TAP program is about learning how to write your resume and how to get a job. But like, that's probably super small on the totem pole of what needs to be the the focus right now for a transitioning veteran. And and it shouldn't just be like, here's the number to VA. Uh, you know, it's. Sh- I fully believe it should be like, here's the number to Big Fish Foundation. And here's the number to the Travis Manning Foundation. And you might do yourself a favor and get involved with these groups before you have even processed out of the service because it's going to do a world of good for you. Like what the the problem that I see a lot and I see it a lot with our our, our participants in our Spartan Leadership Program, they got out of the military, they lost themselves, they got somehow connected with one of our organizations and all of a sudden they're found again, right? They're like, this is what I've been searching for. And so for, you know, for our, our service, uh, our different service branches and our VA to not fully understand and buy into fully that holistic approach to community is a disservice to every service member that's taking off that uniform because the science behind, you know, our mental health crisis. Like I'm not a psychiatrist. I know there's a lot more factors, but the number one thing is that isolation and and disconnection from community. You know, we need to, we need people and not only just a community, but a community that is going to be like Tosh who says, Hey, listen, Like, I'm going to lead with compassion and love. I'm going to teach you how to be vulnerable. Like, that's missing. And there's pockets of it. We know there's pockets of it. We see it every day. That's what we do. But it's not the norm, right? It's Mm -hmm. not the norm for the veteran that's, that's taking off the uniform in Wichita, Kansas. And, you know, 
and and doesn't doesn't feel like he has any sort of community or um anywhere to go to have those conversations no i think that's man you've i vote for you for president right like that's it i'm i use i use this analogy um a lot more frequently now but just look at our look at us as a vehicle you know and we all know we have a check engine light and when the check engine light comes on in the vehicle it's like oh shit i gotta get it into the shop and i know i can ride on it for days months maybe even another year with my check engine light on right when it starts blinking we know like okay it's imminent like it better be on the way right now because if it breaks down i'm going to be stranded and who knows what's going to happen right the world's going to fall apart we're focused so much today in the in the hell in the health space right for mental mental health on individuals with their check engine lights on to blinking right or even in in further down further downstream from on so either on blinking or crashed on the side of the road right and 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 that's very very important but it's so much more cost effective it's so much more efficient it's so much more valuable period to when you recognize that your brakes are starting to squeal or you check the tread wear on your tires and it's like hey i've got 3 months left on on these guys like to do the maintenance cycle ahead of time which is funny because in the military the maintenance cycle almost cripples battalions and during training right like oh nope we have to pm airplanes we have to down aircraft for their maintenance cycles for vehicles for this for that for this for that and we're very very diligent at punching tickets on the maintenance cycles yet when it deal we deal with personnel we don't and if you look at expendable versus inexpendable if that's the right word resources i would say vehicles and aircrafts and howitzers are an expendable resource not the human life. Yeah. And if we look at the human life over time, like what, what does this human's life look like 15 years down the road, 20 years down the road? And and maybe from every parent's point of view, more importantly, what does their children's lives look like 20 years down the road? And we don't have to just talk about suicide rates. We can talk about divorce rates, right? We can talk about homelessness. So there's all of these things, they share so much in common. And when you really pull that thread and get back to the root of where the fiber's broken, I think you have it spot on is, is where in a, 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 an active duty service members time cycle is, where do we start onboarding some of these things? Right. Is it six months before they get out of service? Is it one year? You know, Uncle Sam's got to get every penny for their dollar spent on training individual, like whatever, whatever. But there's smarter people that can run it through a through a calculator to figure or out when it, we should be doing it. Yeah. Or is it in fact like I think of in the first cohort? Um, I think he was in the first co- cohort. Was was Chris Story in the first one? I can't remember. Set, was he with you or with Josh? Because Josh came through. As Maybe well. he was with. But but Chris was an active duty Marine. That was mm-hmm. part of our Spartan leadership program. And he, in fact, the conversations I had with him were so interesting because he was talking, I mean, he was almost, I don't want to say struggling because he's hes not, he's, he wasn't struggling, but he was dealing with the same stuff that the that people that had taken off the uniform six years prior were dealing with. And- you know, he just by 
connection through through other people learned about this and had the opportunity to be able to take um, the time to be a part of this program while he was active duty. And I've watched him transition beautifully out of the Marine Corps. He's thriving. He's still actively engaged. I'm going to see him this weekend or next weekend at the Marine Corps Marathon. Like he's just, he's killing it because he had set himself up again. He was checking that engine light before it even turned on. Right. And he Mm -hmm. did it on his own, but not everybody's going to be able to, not everybody knows to do that. And sometimes, you know, we have to put that into place. And I think it's, I think it's, a miss for us and our national defense when we're not focused on that, you know, know. in a bigger way. The other thing too is my check engine light was on. I just, and I'm looking at it and I don't even see that it's on, but it's on. That's, that's the, that's the reality of, of, of the individuals we're talking about when they're in this yeah. and it's in, and other people realize like, Oh, Tosh check engine lights on, but he's, he's okay. He can drive for a little longer. And it wasn't until other people or a life event said, Hey, look, your light is on. In fact, it's actually just started blinking. Right. But I, I would submit that my check engine light was on for a long time and through denial, ignorance, you know, selective sight. Uh, I didn't see it. I didn't want to accept it or acknowledge it. And I was blessed by, I don't know, some sort of like knock in the head to wake up. And what I want to do is I want to knock on people's heads and hearts to have them wake up a lot sooner in the process than I did. Yeah, that's so, I mean, my check engine light was, my car had broken down like a year prior and I was just running on the side of the road. I mean, it was, you know, and, and it took like, it took me becoming literally being crippled by anxiety that would not let me walk out of my house to be like, Oh wait, I actually, I can't live right now. Um, so I, I love that analogy the the check engine light. And, and you know, we've made great gains in the military too, right? Like I want to, I want to also, because it's consistent with who I am, like, We've, we've come a long way from where we were when One. I've gotten out, even, even to before I got out, right. With, with doing things in these programs and, and creating opportunities for people to reach out for help and saying, Hey, it's okay to reach help and trying to reduce the stigma associated to an individual who says, Hey, I need a timeout. Right. And, and it just takes time. And so the ball is rolling. I'm, I'm happy for that. Right. I can see it we're just so commingled in the mix right now that it feels like it should be rolling faster. We should be farther down the road. Um, And so there are great things. There are pockets of great, wonderful stuff going on. And there's a lot of competing interests and making no excuses or concessions for anybody. Um, We've got a lot of work to do. And that's why it, with the big fish foundation, we always, we always say like, Hey, let's let's we want people that are willing to put their gloves on not their hands out like i'm happy to put our gloves on our working gloves right um and do some work because it's we can't just ride the tide well yeah and i and i agree with you i think not only has there been great strides i've seen some of the the things that they're doing within the marine corps specifically and i have to imagine the other service branches are doing similar things but i think as a society we've done a really good job of 
bringing the stigma down for, for mental health, you know, and making that more, I'll tell you, I was, I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2012. I didn't outside of two or three people max. I didn't share that with anybody for five years. And then it was actually at a TMF event. I was, it was out in San Diego. It was our first Spartan leadership summit. And, you know, people were getting really vulnerable and talking about, and, and it wasn't in, you know, and I got up at the end to give my closing remarks and I'd heard so many people open up in such beautiful ways and share stories about kind of their pain and their struggle and where they had been. And, and I got up behind the podium and I was like, listen, you know, in 2012, I was diagnosed with PTSD. And you know what I did? I never went back to the woman that diagnosed me with it. I thought she was an idiot. I cursed her out and I walked out and I never saw her again. Like I was angry that I was diagnosed with PTSD. And I shared that story. And in fact, it was Josh who was out there and he's like, I can't believe you just said that to everybody. And I'm like, yeah, neither can I. But it was the first time I felt like I was given the space to feel comfortable in saying that and still feel, you know, because when you're vulnerable, right? Like, and, and it was that conflict getting back to the beginning of our conversation where like, I felt this intense responsibility to showcase myself as a leader out at your place, representing these veterans and, and families of fallen service members. And, and I was not looking at myself as a gold star sister out there to experience it. I was looking at myself as, you know, I'm the head of this organization. I'm here to observe and acknowledge and help people through this week long process. And here I was like really struggling. And I was like, oh my God, this is not good. You know? Um, but I think it's continuing to present a space for people to feel like they can share that stuff. And, and I think it's continuing to bring awareness to people that are in a place of elevation that, that do have a little bit of, um, have a little bit of a following and, you know, for you to open up in that way and share your story, uh, is important. It's really important. Um, in fact, it's so important that, um, coming up Under Armour is going to share your story, right? And more specifically, yeah. The Rock is going to be sharing your story for Veterans Day. And he was in Boulder a couple of weeks ago, and he never had the courtesy to come by and say hello. Can you believe that? That's He's down there at the football game, you know, signing autographs. So you think that the guy would have just drove up here and had a cup of coffee or something? But <laughs> well, you know, we've had this partnership with Under Armour for many years, and they are wonderful at, you know, with them, it's not a transactional relationship. You know, they, they support us financially in a big way, but they also allow us to share the work that we do in a big way too, which is equally as important. And, um, they came to us this year again and said, Hey, the, the, the rock highlighted TMF a few years ago. And they said, Hey, he wants to do it again, but he wants to specifically dial in on, on a veteran and a veteran story. And when they kind of explained the veteran that they were looking for, it was like, it was you. It was a, a veteran that had been out there in combat, like doing the dirty work, but now was back with the uniform off and continuing to do work in a different way, continuing to engage the military community. And it was like unanimous. We're like, it's Tosh, like he's the guy. And um, yeah. 
Only reason, only reason I said yes was uh, because of you, uh, our phone call. <laughs> and uh, it's, I think the world of you and what you've got going on and obviously Josh, and I believe in the work that we're doing. I'm, I'm excited about the work that we're doing individually, but more importantly, um, when two great organizations come together and, and collaborate like, like we have been in the last few years, um, it, it truly is special and just want to be able to share that to give access and opportunity to more, more veterans and their families and um, potentially inspire other individuals to put their gloves on and, and start like-minded organizations that have shared common interests and values, right? Um, because it is, like you said, you use the word, it's not transactional, your relationship with Under Armour. And I feel that with them and talking to the representatives from them that I've talked to and worked with, they they truly are invested in in our country through an arm being the military and in the veteran world amongst other arms. But yeah. um yeah, it's I'm excited, excited to see what uh what more good we can do with it. Yeah. So, you know, Tasha's face coming soon to uh to uh rock social media feed. So that'll be pretty cool. <laughs> you could put that we'll on see. your resume too, Tosh, yeah. you know? Oh man, that, that page is full. <laughs> well, okay. So in on August 11th, 2020, I ended the episode by asking you what living a resilient life looks like for you. And so I'm going to ask you the same question and then I'm going to, and then I'm going to actually pull our awesome uh, marketing team together and we're going to, we're going to put both of those together and we'll make a cool little reel for you to share out with your 2020 answer. And then, mm. and then your answer today. So what does living a resilient life look like for you? Yeah. Maybe I should have listened to that episode again. I don't know what you on. said either. And full. I don't remember. So this will be interesting. I believe I have a sense of it because it still holds true, but that we'll, we'll validate that here in a minute. But, um, I think a resilient life is, is learning to accept who you are, what you feel, um, trying to free yourself from judgment and the limitations that judgment and expectations put on you in order to continue to, to, to persevere, right. In whatever, whatever capacity that looks like for you, um, to add value to the world, add value to others around you. Um, there's a quote that I'll paraphrase that comes to mind. And it's like all evil needs to do to thrive is for good to do nothing and just keep doing good. You know, just one more step when things get tough, when things get hard, just take one more step, just do the next right thing. That's what, that's what a resilient life is. Just, just do the next right thing. Everything's confusing. Everything's crashing in on you. Um, so much to do so many obligations. It's like, Hey, just take a deep breath just do the next right thing. And then when that's done, just do the next right thing. And so um, that's where I would arrive at um, being put on the spot right now. And I will look you in the eyes and tell you that I am embracing that more and more every day. And I do well at it most days. Some days I don't. Um, just, just one more breath, just one more step. Do the next right thing. I like that. You know, a lot of times we talk about resiliency as like, and a lot of people say, you know, just keep one foot in front of the other, just keep moving, but do the right thing, take the right next step. Right. So that's important. Mm -hmm. Tosh, it's always great talking to you. Um, 
I love everything that you stand for. I love everything that you do. And um, I, I hope that we continue to bring many more veterans to your place in Colorado to have a life-changing experience. And I can't thank you enough for the role that you play at the Travis Manning Foundation to help transform these veterans' lives. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's always good to see you. Give hugs to everybody. 